Welcome to another episode of the Phoenix Rising Podcast. Journeys of descending into the mysteries and rising from the roots. I am your host, Lisa Hillier, and today I have James Connolly on the show with me. James is an artist, chef, nonprofit founder, and documentary film producer with Archer Gray Productions. He co-founded the Bubble Foundation, a nonprofit focused on issues of wellness and food insecurity in inner city public schools. The documentary film production team at Archer Gray Productions has produced films from Trans Military, a film that explores equal opportunity and discrimination for the over 15,000 active duty transgender soldiers serving the military, to Michael Moore's latest documentary, Where to Invade Next, where Moore explores issues like mass incarceration, school food, criminal justice, and student debt. James' most recent film is Sacred Cow, the nutritional, environmental, and ethical case for better meat, directed by Diana Rogers. And this episode is full of of wisdom around the underworkings of the food industry and what I love so much about when we talk about these subjects, when we have conversations around these social issues is that we can make different choices once we are aware of what is going on beneath the surface so to speak we can shift we can make a change happen by voting with our money by purchasing different things by going directly to our farmers to shopping local to doing there's so many ways that we can shift the way that these systems are working. And so I hope that this conversation inspires you to make changes, however that looks for you. And the key to everything is awareness. That's the first step that has to happen for change to occur. And so thank you for being here. And if you feel called to share this episode, please do, please subscribe. Please leave us a five-star rating, a review. It helps so much to get these conversations to a wider audience. And I am so, so grateful for your support. If you feel called to support the podcast financially, the Patreon portal is an amazing portal full of workshops ready for you to access on hormone health, descending deeper into your feminine essence, and so much more. And as well, there is a list of affiliate links in the show notes at the bottom of the list. I am loving Wild Holistics tinctures, pearl powder, I especially love. And if you use the discount code LISA upon purchase, you will receive 10% off. And so now let's dive into the episode with James. Welcome to the podcast, James, and producer of Death in the Garden, Sacred Cow, and co-producer or co-host, sorry, of Sustainable Dish podcast. So let's start there. Sustainable Dish. There's so much that can go with that term, a sustainable dish. And I think oftentimes we are sold an idea of what sustainability looks like and what it actually is. And I'm going with 
meat consumption and vegetables and this narrative that we're being sold around veganism, perhaps, or it can look many different ways. And so for you, what is what is a sustainable dish? What does sustainable food look like? Hmm. There's an interesting uh, um, conversation that we had with one of the farmers that shows up in the film. Um, and uh, he actually... It, I want to, I don't want to butcher the quote, but he said, um, he said something to the effect of sustainable. What, why would you want to sustain this system? (laughs) You know? And so he was, he was looking at it from an agricultural lens and what he is trying to do now is regenerate. Um, and so, um, there, there is a lot to do, uh, nowadays with the idea of regenerating. Um, and so our, our, our agricultural system for a very long time, especially after 1950s, um, had a very specific protocol in place. And it was a scientific protocol that had us at total war with nature. Um, and so we took a lot of the weapons that we used um, and the bombs that we used and the chemicals that were produced during World War II and in some ways in World War I in the early part of the 20th century, and we weaponized them against nature. Uh, and that was to produce uh, food and food as much as much food as we possibly could. Um, so for us, like sustainability, um, you know, we try to think about it in terms of um, it, I, I've, I've tried to devote my time on sustainable dish um, to spending a lot of time focusing on subjects that are tangentially related to the world that we live in today, um, where it came from. Um, and, uh, how agriculture is, uh, one of the more perfect parables, uh, for all of the other things that are sort of happening today. Um, and I think that agriculture was an experiment that we started so roughly sort of 10 to 14 to 15,000 years ago. Uh, we lived very differently for about 3 million years before that. Um, but we, we tend to not think about that time. Uh, how did we live as anatomically modern humans for, you know, somewhere, I don't know. I mean, depending on where it is, say, we'll say 2.3 million years, we live very differently. Um, and so in some ways, the story that we tell ourselves is that because of the agricultural uh, uh, revolution, which we still live in today, we want to say that there's like a timeline that says agricultural revolution to um to the industrial revolution, to uh, the information revolution or whatever we're living through today. Um, But for the most part, we actually still live in the agricultural revolution. Uh, The industrial revolution doesn't exist without our ability to feed ourselves. Um, uh, The information revolution doesn't exist uh, unless we have the ability to feed ourselves. Um, Shakespeare doesn't exist unless we have the ability to feed ourselves. Uh, And so what we have done over that period of time in the agricultural revolution is create um, a methodology for producing more and more food uh, and that produce more and more people. Um, And so for us, it's one of the things that that we find very few people actually think about nowadays. Uh, In the U.S., it's less than, I'd say, 1.5% of the population actually works in agriculture. Uh, it used to be 50% in the 1950s, um, probably close to 70% um, at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and so as we excised people from 
uh, how we produce our food, it became easy and easier to just assume that it all just originates at a supermarket. Um, and we don't really think about it all that much. So for us, sustainability means um, a real sort of deep dive into uh, many of the processes that we have today that we actually don't think about. And so we try to pull people out of what we consider to be sort of the civilizational response to all of those things and say, well, what is for us sustainable? If, if I was going to give like a one sentence idea of it, sustainable is like, what is the best um, environment? Um, you know, say we live in a human zoo. Um, what is the zoo that is most conducive to human health, to human happiness and to the happiness of the planet that we live in? Um, and so, uh, that, that is for us, is sort of the mantra that we constantly tell ourselves. Yeah. I love that human zoo. If we were in a human <laughs> zoo, it's so interesting. I would, cause I live in a rainforest here and I had friends visiting me and we were walking through the forest and there were these berries and I was eating them off the bush. I, I think they were salmon berries, but it doesn't matter. But my friend wouldn't eat one. And she's like, I don't trust nature. And that has been the conditioning that we've been sold over our lifetime is trust what you get in the supermarket. It's great, but don't trust what you'll find in the woods. And granted, there are some things in the woods for sure that are poisonous and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. but we trust the supermarket where very few of us know what is happening to our food before it arrives there. So I, I thought it was an interesting experience, just how we've been conditioned to trust something other than nature. And I loved how you said war with nature. We turned into a space of where we're at war with nature. Why do you think we've been turned to be at war with nature in the 1950s? Um, I, uh in so, in some ways, it, if I if I if I put, try to put myself into the place of um, uh, well, actually, I just want to backtrack for a second. So, uh, hunter hunter gatherer tribes will find within a quarter mile of of most of the places that they settle uh, between sixteen hundred plants uh, that are edible, um, and you know, like we we have absolutely no idea. So, in in many ways, I understand when people walk through nature. Uh, and what they see is um, is potential harm. Um, you know, we there is there is enough conditioning that happens uh, within uh, a media landscape that sells lots of fear. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, we only hear about the people who accidentally poison the, themselves with, say, mushrooms that look like, you know. Uh, you know, any number of different things. Um, and most of it is because primarily we're incompetent, right? A hunter gatherer has the ability to go and produce its own food, its own clothing, its own shelter. Uh, they have done that, uh, for millions of years. Uh, we, there's probably one in, you know, a million people, uh, alive on this planet today in Western culture who could probably do those, uh, things themselves as well. Um, so to get back to your question, um, I, I, I want to say uh, the production volume that happened in the 1950s um, had won the exuberance of the sort of chemical era. 
right? And so you have this thing where it's like you start to pull, you start to understand what nature, what you believe that nature is, and you start to pull all of these different dynamics from nature, and you say that you could, you can control this environment in many myriad different ways. Um, and so humans had this illusion of control uh, going forward. Whereas I think if you look at a lot of the posters and media, uh, the world fairs, the um, the, the way that we talked about what technology was going to do for us, even in the early 2000s, uh, the assumption was that we would, we would be living in these perfect landscapes of these, like, you know, um, space age towers. Um, and if you look at a lot of that stuff, what you never see in there is nature, right? You see these, like, uh, environments that are completely antiseptic, where maybe you have flying cars around or jetpacks or whatever. So the, the, irrational exuberance of the 1950s so that we we are starting to learn enough that we can control and dominate nature um and the the best way to do that was through um th the same things that we we're using for war um and you we uh we actually talk about this a lot um kate who you had on this podcast um we were talking uh, a lot about um, recently, and sorry, this is a small tangent, but I think it's actually a really good parable. Uh, we've been talking a lot about phosphate mining. Um, it's weird, you know, like in order to grow food, you need three basic elements. Uh, you need nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. Um, and so nitrogen is abundant in the atmosphere. It's, uh, our atmosphere is predominantly nitrogen, but most of it is inert. Uh, you have to be able to activate it in order to grow plants. Uh, and there's a few ways that you can do that. Um, they, we use legumes, uh, the bacteria that grows on the root systems of the legumes, uh, will, um, they will pair and activate the nitrogen in the air, uh, and actually share that with other plants that surround them. Um, so that we, we started to understand in early 1906. Um, potassium is fairly abundant. Phosphorus is this weird element where we've known for actually a very long time that it, it, it limits the growth of everything on this planet. Uh, there is a finite amount. Once you exceed that amount, there is no more. We can't produce it. Uh, it's a, it's a strange element. Um, and so for us, phosphorus, um, became this sort of metaphor that we constantly talk about because you need this to grow right? You absolutely need this to grow. And yet in World War II, we created these phosphorus bombs uh, and we would light entire cities on fire with them. Uh, because once you take that phosphorus, distill it down and make something they call elemental phosphorus, it just burns. It burns until <laughs> it will go out. So you could take these things that are fundamental life and use them as killing weapons, you know? And it's, it, we did the same thing with nitrogen. Um, the, a lot of the bombs that were produced, um, in World War One and World War II were the basic elements of that were nitrogen. So we have this sort of weird duality that kind of happens, um, in, in our world where we take these things that are absolutely an integral to life and we use it as killing machines. Um, and so I think they reversed it in the 1950s. They said, all right, well, we're going to take these killing machines, <laughs> these perfect elements for killing, and we're going to convert that into making life. Um, and then, it, but you can also take a lot of those elements and use those for pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides. 
Um, and so it's just a sort of like stranger element of our world. Um, and I think in some ways it's the, the way that you view science. Um, a lot of people now are trying to reconcile themselves with that war with nature and see how they can commune with nature more to understand all of the elements of that. Um, because our, we know that the war, we're losing the war. Um, so if you take phosphorus or if you take nitrogen, you take that abundance, uh, you put it onto land to grow food. If it washes into our water systems, um, it does what it's supposed to do. And it, builds all of this algae blooms that we've seen where you see green rivers and then you see dead zones all the way down in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, so those algae will bloom in the way that our plants will in agriculture, they'll bloom. They take all of the oxygen out of that water and then all the fish die, every, all of the life that dies around there. So all of these di different elements are integral to life, but in excess or used in the wrong way um, can actually be the perfect lethal sort of killing machines. Um, and so like when, when we talk about it, we like when I walk through a supermarket now, what, what I experience on a regular basis is awe, right? Cause I'm just total awed, like the a sheer abundance of what I see right in front of me. Uh, and, but also just terror because the amount of, like death required for everything that you see in there, um, you know, in, in order to feed ourselves is, is what we've done. We've terraformed this planet to feed ourselves. Um, and so for us, it's a, it's just a weird mix of emotions that we're constantly going through. Um, so the 1950s was a sort of pivotal moment, I think in many different ways. Um, and what we did was we, I think it's up until the 1970s, we have produced enough food for a growing population uh, almost every single year since the 1970s. Um, so uh, even last year and the year before, we produced enough food to feed about 10, 10 billion people, right? So we, we produce enormous amount of abundance of food. Um, now, why are people starving? It's a question that we should have always be constantly asking ourselves um, because we we produce enough food, um, even going up until 2050, we produce enough calories every year uh, to be able to feed a growing population of people. Um, and a lot of that is political. A lot of it is, you know, feed person one person a day, but then you're feeding them 365 days out of the year. Um, and there are just a whole different element of just myriad different um uh, policies and bureaucracies and profit motives and everything like that that associated with, um, but the, so yeah, I, I think it's, for me, it's the awe of, we produce so many calories. It's absolutely insane how many calories we produce. Um, and, uh, and terror, because I think once you realize the ecological cost to all of that, uh, you start to realize that we're really drawing down on a lot of um, you know the checks and balances that naturally occur within nature um, that allow for you know that that's why we're seeing dead zones that's why we're seeing species uh, you know extinctions that's why we're seeing all of these different things. Yeah, yeah. I loved that analogy. I think it, the analogy of in the right amount is perfect, but in excess, what I receive from that is it becomes poison, like the nitrogen, the potassium. 
the phosphorus, all of this, the right amount is what nature requires. But when it becomes excess, it becomes poison. Is that fair to say? Yeah, uh, there are um, always nuances within that, but um, there. So one of the funnier elements of uh, the crops that we grow is that um, you can give them all the nitrogen that they want. Um, there is an, a sort of an evolutionary quality to it where it's like they only take up a certain percentage of it and you never know which percentage they're going to take up. Okay. <laughs> There's sort of a little bit of a pain in the ass. <laughs> um, but I do think in, in some ways it's like a limit to growth for them, right? Uh, it's so... Uh, we've seen this before. There's a wonderful book on, um, uh, it's a Peter Wolubin, Wolubin's book on uh, the secret life of trees. Mm -hmm. um, and he sees nature as very cooperative. Uh, we have been raised and sort of conditioned in our environment to see it as uh, fighting tooth and, and nail and claw. Um, you know, um, we see nature as, as very differently, but he sees it as cooperative. He said he has a um, uh, a really nice story about um, I think it's redwoods. Uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, um, but if they're uh, they would talk about redwoods in essence, sort of shading over their saplings, um, and they and so if you look at it from a certain lens, it look like it looks like it's competing for sunlight uh, with the saplings, um, but if the saplings grow too quickly what ends up happening is that they'll actually fall over. They need to build a root system and a trunk system that can sustain itself long enough uh, so that it can build outwards as it's building upwards. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you look at it from the lens of cooperation, what that uh, older redwood is doing is giving time and space for this tree that is going to live for hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, the space it needs in order to grow outwards so it doesn't fall over. Mm. Um, and so it's a really interesting like aspect of it. We, we talk so much about how, um, nature is cooperative in so many different ways. Um, and I think we're starting to move in that direction to really understand how forests work, uh, that their, their root systems are nutrient sharing systems, uh, that they share messages and signaling underneath, uh, that in essence will tell about predation. Um, they will share um, nutrients with other trees that are suffering. Mm -hmm. um, if they're diseased, they'll shuttle nutrients to those trees that are diseased to allow them um, the strength enough to fight fight back at predation. Um, they there is they they actually call it the wood wide web, <laughs> which is really cool. Um, yeah. But there's a and and all of the soil microbes and all of the things that that coexist underground are creating these environments uh, by which you have all of this nutrient sharing. Um, so if you didn't have those micro mycorrhizal fibers, those, the mushrooms underneath, uh, the detritivores, the nematodes, all of these different things that are happening under the ground, uh, trees wouldn't actually probably grow more than about three feet tall. Wow. So you have this supercharged system that exists underneath that is this sharing and banking system um, that is so cooperative in so many different ways. Um, but our lens has been for so long as humans 
our lens has always been centered around this idea that like uh, it's a very Darwinian, uh, you know, fight for survival sort of intraspecies, like in your own species, but then uh, sort of predator and prey relationships that see them as, um, you know, fighting tooth and claw. But it, none of that stuff actually makes that much sense if you think about it logically. Yeah. You know? So using nature as a teacher of working together, not fighting to get to the top. Yeah. Fighting against yeah. each other. Yeah. Yeah. When you spoke to going into the supermarket and seeing death, like seeing awe and abundance and also a lot of death, can you speak to that death and what that looks like for the things that we don't really think about and where I'm going with that is, you know, I was a, a vegan for many years. Mm. I thought I was making the right choice. I thought that almonds were the better option than eating ground beef, not realizing the death that goes into producing an almond, the bees that die in that process, all the mm -hmm. different things that die in the process of giving me my almond butter, you know, and it was just not something that I thought about. So can you speak to the death in the supermarket or in the uh, garden? Sure. Yeah. I, um, so I'm 49 years old. I'll be 50 in January. Um, I don't know if I can recall uh, almonds growing up. <laughs> right? That's true. I, I'm 43 and I'm like, I don't remember <laughs> almonds now that you say it. Yeah. Uh, pistachios, almonds. I, I wouldn't even know. I mean, peanuts, I think we had still had sh in shells and that was considered nuts. Peanuts, if we had yeah. nuts, they were peanuts. Yeah. Um, that jar with the like little peanut man. Yeah. Totally. That <laughs> yeah. Or yeah. if you, if you had peanuts, they were those candied peanuts. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, yeah. it, it's so, um, and I, I couldn't necessarily say that we can trace this back to 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 one group, uh, one individual person. But uh, for the most part, um, we have this uh, sort of uh, a farming empire, these billionaires uh, that exist in California. Um, and they they were able to get in many different ways uh, the sort of the water rights for a huge section of, of California. Um, and, um, they, the really interesting group, I think they were a, originally sort of home shopping network. They would sell those little porcelain dolls. Um, and they were able to leverage some of that wealth in order to buy up huge tracts of, of farmland in California. Um, uh, and they were, they were able to, um, so California produces, uh, I think somewhere around 80% of the world's almonds now, um, did not like 30 years ago. Uh, pistachios. It's one of the leading producers of pistachios. Um, and so this one family, uh, the Resnicks, um, Stuart Resnick and his wife um, became in essence sort of billionaires uh, off of like one selling agricultural product uh, products, um, cuties, those little oranges are theirs. Um, they've got any number of different things, but what they are is a brilliant marketing machine. They're one of the most brilliant marketing machines. You, you'll see them on the Super Bowl. You see, like, you know, um, the late night talk show host uh, guy uh, hawking pistachios. You know, those those commercials cost a million dollars for like fifteen seconds, right? 
Um, and so they were able palm, uh, the pomegranate um, juice uh, that's also theirs as well. So th think about the, the nature and the landscape of a lot of what we consider to be superfoods nowadays. And a lot of it really comes from the Resnicks um, and they are a marketing empire. So what they did was they were able to come um, and what we call them are what we call these products are uh, sort of like high value products that you can sell to people. Uh, almonds being one of them. Um, you know, um, anything that, that gives a sort of health halo, pomegranate juice, obviously like came out of nowhere, um, huge in antioxidants, blah, blah, blah. Look at the color. How could it be bad for you? Blah, blah, blah. Right. <laughs> um, and so they were able to con convince and create this halo of, um, of, of health, uh, around all of this stuff because they're in Hollywood. Uh, they were able to utilize Hollywood culture in order to sell all this stuff. Um, and so it takes years for a, an almond tree to be able to grow. So it starts to produce. Um, but once it starts to produce, it becomes a huge high value commodity product. Um, it millions and millions of dollars can be made off of these trees. Um, they require enormous amounts of water enormous uh it's it, the average for walnuts pistachios and almonds is about a gallon of water per almond um you also have to keep that tree watered um all the time because if the tree isn't watered enough it dies uh now you've just lost all uh productivity off of it uh and so what they started to do is they're they're water rights um, means that they can excise as much water to essentially film, uh, to, to flood all of these different plains in order to uh, keep these trees alive. Um, and so it's a, just an enormous, enormous water capture. Um, it's to the point now that we're starting to see um, all of these 10,000 year old aquifers in California essentially being drained. Um, they're pulling all of this groundwater up uh, in order to feed these trees. Um, there is enormous amounts of subsidence. So water holds itself on the underneath the ground. Well, what happens when you take that water away? You see three feet of like highways. You can see like 12 inches of highways start to subside. The whole ground is collapsing underneath there. Um, and then uh, at the end of the day, the um, these things need to be pollinated. And so what they, they bring millions upon uh, really billions, uh, billions of bees in from all across the country every single year, uh, to pollinate. And so they'd send out all of these bees. Um, and so simultaneous with that is, um, you're also, uh, the bees are exposed to pesticides, um, and so they're dying. You start to see a lot of colony collapse that we're seeing in, in bee production. Um, and when you start to see that we're, we're killing enormous amounts of, of bees. Now, if you walk through the supermarket and you see all the fresh fruit and produce and everything like that, you see um, somewhere around. So the statistic is really strange. So you say, um, I, I, want, I want to get this right, but I may this say this incorrectly because it's been a while. Um, you see 30% of 30% of the fresh fruits and vegetables, um, nuts and stuff like that, um, are need pollination in order to, uh, to grow. Um, but 70% of what we eat actually needs pollination if it's in the fruits and vegetables and, and, you know, category, right? right? So what happens when you see just a total 
collapse of the pollinators, um, the domesticated pollinators that we use. What does that supermarket look like afterwards? Right. And so for us, it's like we want to if we want to build a sustainable system, we cannot we, these things cannot live the way that they're living. If you look at footage and we have we have drone footage for our next film, Death in the Garden, and you will travel for miles, miles after miles, uh, perfectly rowed uh, almond trees just going on and on like to the horizon. Um, every single one of those trees requiring pollination, water, you know, every, everything surrounding that, you know? And so for us, it's like, is, is that sustainable? Is that mm -hmm. the, is that the future that we're looking for? Um, you know, we're, we are seeing enormous amounts of drought happening in California, uh, in the West coast. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're pulling up enormous amounts of like water, but we're also doing in the, in the middle of the country as well. Uh, the Aguala aquifer is essentially being drained at, at record levels. Uh, so we're pulling all of this water out of the ground in order to feed ourselves. Um, but, you know, for us, it's a, you know, like the, the conversation is never meat versus plant. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. that, That's the thing that we, I think we have tried to do from the very beginning. This is not a, this divide is a false divide. Um, you know, what we're trying to do is design a system that takes into account human health, human happiness, um, because we know what, what, what we eat affects our mood. We, it affects our ability to function. Our, you know, like the, the mind-body duality is, is, is a false choice as well. It's a false duality. Um, and if we take nutrients into account, when we start to look at animal foods, they start to really sort of rack up all of the points that we're looking for. Um, it's very hard to find all of the elements that you find in animal source foods uh, in the plant kingdom. Um, mm -hmm. You have to start to combine a lot. You start to think a lot more about your foods. What we want to create is an omnivorous environment, uh, an omnivorous diet um, that is more associated with uh, what is more, most conducive to human health. And then also look at the ecological footprint of, of a lot of that stuff. Um, and, and say, can we build a sustainable system, uh, that looks and mimics nature that works with it, that does like, uh, ruminant animals are one of the most magical animals on the planet, uh, from the giraffe, uh, to the moose, you know, all the way down to like a tiny goat. Uh, they have these magical chambers in which they produce, um, they're, they're cute. They're, they're animal composting machines. They're absolutely mm -hmm. amazing. And they bring fertility wherever they go. Um, you know, and so we, what we want to do is start to break apart this conversation, this false duality of plant versus animal and say, well, what is, what is that regenerative sustainable system look like? And how can we feed into that and, you know, use policy, um, you know, use like, long form conversations about this stuff and, um, and not follow the marketing machines that come out of a lot of these things. Um, you know, vegan documentaries are brilliant marketing machines, but they're, 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 they're bought and paid for by a very specific set of people, uh, who would consider themselves animal activists before they are anything else, I think. Um, and so they have a very specific point of view, which as a documentary filmmaker, so do I. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, yeah. you know, I think that there is, uh, 
you know, we have to start to think there, there is no governing body in documentaries that says whether one is true, one, one story is true or not. There really isn't, you know, (laughs) so we should all be skeptical, you know, of when we see something. Yeah. Especially one that, that, especially if you see a documentary that, uh, that tries to sell you something in the way that we've been sold, like used cars. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. I think the one Cowspiracy. That's yeah. document. Yeah, I think that yeah. was the one that got me to become yeah. vegan. You know, uh, yeah. But, I mean, it was probably one of the more successful documentaries ever ever made. Yeah, yeah. Right. And I, I think what you said about it's not one or the other. We're seeing that a lot in so many different narratives right now on the planet. You know, where it's one or the other. Right. And it's important that it's it's not that. It's a system that works together where everything is involved. It's not straight meat. It's not straight vegetables. There's um, a network that works together, like the hidden, the secret life of trees or the hidden life of trees. I remember that book that you spoke to earlier, where everything is working together. Nature works together. Can you, what's a ruminant animal? What What is that? The giraffe? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my mom did that to, to me as well. She was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so uh, rumen animals are, uh, they typically have a four chambered stomach. Uh, and what they do is they, they break down um, cellulose um, primarily like uh, it depends on the animal, but uh, grasses, um, twigs, shrubs, uh, any number of different um, very tightly packed cellulosic material uh, that could never be broken down by human beings. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen those t-shirts. It's like, um, you know, like eat like a rhino or like, you know, and you'll become big and strong. Um, They're they're out there, trust me. But we we do not have the capacity to be able to do what they do. Uh, And what ruminants uh, do is they create a sort of microcosm uh, within their environment uh, in their stomachs where they essentially ferment uh, all of all of the cellulosic and grasses. They take all of that material um, and they produce uh, fatty acids that help them to grow. They pull those calories out. Um, and it's really not the stomach itself. The stomach creates this environment for that. Um, it is um, these uh, the bacteria that live in that environment uh, that actually breaks all of that stuff down. Um, and so you have, uh, this sort of bacterial, again, it's cooperative, right? Uh, you create this perfect environment for this bacteria to be able to proliferate. Uh, what it does is it breaks down those, that material eats itself, and then it produces these fatty acids for the cow to be able to grow. Um, if the cow wasn't there, um, if those grasses actually went, uh, and started to break down on their own. Uh, which you've ever seen a compost heap uh, do that? Those are the exact same, uh, uh, you know, sort of bacteria that are doing that. They're just doing that in the stomach, and the stomach works really well because it's a pH environment. It controls the temperature. It does all of those things, and then once uh, once it's digested, then it's pooped out, uh, and then that becomes like compost. It's got seeds in it, um, and so. When you would see these bison migrations, like a 60 million bison going from uh, sort of middle middle part of Canada all the way down to Florida and into Mexico, they would travel 
uh, and follow the seasons, they would move these incredible, like, you know, um, this sort of, uh, you could see in the 18th century, these stories of like, you see these bison herds all the way moving the days and days. You would see that, um, you can look at the wildebeest migration in, um, in Africa and you'll see that it's like millions and millions moving. Uh, and what they're doing is they're following fertility as they go. Um, right. So as, as the grasses start to grow up, as the, you know, the snow melt starts to come down, you start to see the grasses will come up. Uh, then you have the bison come over, they eat them, they eat them with the seeds. They move the seeds as they move all the way through and they pass all of that fertility, uh, all the way, you know, from North to South and then South to North. Um, and bison are absolutely amazing. Uh, like, you know, their coats are seed carriers. Um, so any seeds that catch onto them will eventually fall off, um, but they just move fertility everywhere they go. Um, they're really quite amazing animals. Um, we still have pastoralist communities all over uh, the globe, and they're still doing the same thing they've been doing for thousands of years. Um, they're in Spain, uh, places like India, um, in, in, uh, Kazakhstan and, uh, in, you know, uh, places like Nepal, you have these herding communities and they're just bringing fertility wherever they go. It's really amazing to see. Um, so that's what ruminants do. And they've been doing that for millions of years. Um, you know, they, we, we used to have, uh, apex predators that would chase them, that would move them around. Uh, what we have now is we have the stationary animals that we hold onto farms. And most of the degradation you actually see with a lot of that stuff is because we've actually kept them in one place. Um, you know, so, so the cows will eventually overgraze and just take up everything that they can because they're just eating and they're eating animals. They're eating 16 hours a day, you know? Um, and so it, it, you have to sort of start to keep them moving, so what regenerative agriculture now is trying to do is they actually create these herds. Um, they create these tighter spaces uh, for the cattle, um, for bison, for cattle, for ruminants. Uh, so they'll eat everything on the land as opposed to, uh, all right, so this is, it's actually kind of a cool story. Um, so when you look at a grass, right, you look at, a, a you know, like your friend's lawn. Yeah. Well, mostly ignore that because that's just monoculture anyway. But if you if you go out onto a prairie and you see all of these different there there are multiple different forages and grasses and uh, things like clover. Um, so for cows, clover is ice cream. Um, you know, for uh, like a lot of other different grasses, that stuff is like eating your salad. Okay. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's like yeah, you, you know, it's healthy, but you don't really want to, and you'd rather eat ice cream. Um, so what you do is you corral these cattle together and they'll eventually eat their salad along with their ice cream because they're just, they're just going to eat. And so, um, so what ends up happening is when, when you move them off the land, now everything that was on that land gets to grow back as a being, as opposed to being overgrazed. Uh, so now you have all of this different biodiversity, biodiversity, because they're not just eating one plant and they're just constantly moving. Um, and so you start to see this buildup of enormous, like just incredible biodiversity uh, within those prairies that you just wouldn't have seen before, um, you know. And so it, like it, it to me, it's really like if I could design a system, it would it would 
it would be so strange, but it'd be so beautiful. Like we yeah. would have these herding and pastoralist communities again. They would move animals across the landscape. Like how beautiful would that be? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Be incredible. Yeah. Made yeah. me think when you're speaking to that, I, I live on the ocean and I go to this one bay every morning for my morning walk. And it's so cool to see the different species, like plant species that come up at the different times of the year, like tons of different flowers and species. And so it's this biodiversity that nature has created where it's not a monoculture, like the lawns that we're used to seeing in everybody's yard. There's just an abundance of different things on the land. And I think it's so cool to watch nature and how these native species grow just flourish and thrive in exactly the perfect environment. Do you know, just going back to almonds for a moment, here, sure. where almonds are native to? Uh, I, th um, uh, I think they're native to Iran. Um, and I think pistachios are as well. Um, so one of, one of the things the Resnicks were trying to do is actually to sort of cut off the importation of pistachios and almonds uh, from the Middle East so that they could actually have a total monopoly on the market. Oh, um, so and it's so all about profit. Really, so for the Resnicks, it's everything is about profit. Um, yeah, they're, they're I mean, very, very rarely call people evil, but <laughs> they're pretty <laughs> awful people. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, there seems to be a, a few core families in America <laughs> <laughs> that maybe don't have the best intentions for humanity. Yeah, yeah, um, driven. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That, off the top of my head, the Cargill family is one of them as well. Um, you know that they, they have made. They're. Um, I think they're one of the largest a family of billionaires on the planet. Um, mostly a private company, uh, they are commodities brokers. So what they were able to do was in, in essence, sort of excise all of the wealth that was generated from our agricultural, uh, system, uh, and just have their hands in every aspect of it. Um, you know, and so when you see the siphoning off of wealth for, for farmers and part of the reason why they end up, uh, sort of living on the edge, um, you know, uh, is is primarily because of that. They may be land rich. Uh, they may have, hold wealth on that land, but they can make no profit unless they actually sell it. And part of that reason is because you have uh, a hand grabbing, a sort of parasitic hand grabbing uh, everything that they make. Um, you know, since since about the '60s and '70s, uh, there have been all of these people. Um, sort of going after their wealth and just making enormous amounts of money. One of the one of the bigger problems. So, do you are you familiar with like? I guess I wouldn't necessarily call it a definition, but like, are you familiar with what a commodity is? It's like a yes, kind of. Can you explain? Yeah, I mean, it's a commodity. It's I, like we're a monopoly. Uh, well, it's um. So the. I would say I have my own definition for it. Um, so for me, a commodity is anything that can be uh, that that can be sold as if um, it doesn't matter where it's made, right? So, um, so soybeans, uh, corn, these are things that are uh, you can weigh them by the pound, um, and you can look at different qualities of them. Uh, we have different qualities and ranges of flour that we use, um, but for the most part. 
uh, you can, in essence, say that wherever it's growing on the planet, this thing is is the same or semi-ubiquitous everywhere. Um, so oil is a commodity. Um, there are different grades of it, right? So you have premium grade, like, you know, jet fuel and stuff like that. But then you also have crude, um, you know, but you can quantify and measure and say what the value of this thing is. Um, with traditional agriculture, you're going to get ugly tomatoes. You're going to get ugly. You're going to get different, you know, sizes for different produce. Um, the commodities don't like that at all. Uh, they want this thing that is ubiquitous, that is grown, that is harvested when they want it. Um, and they want to be able to, to, in essence, make the price something that they can have some degree of control over. So whether it's the stock market, the commodities brokers, or the farmers, they essentially say these are these products that we can sell in bulk to anyone anywhere. Uh, mm-hmm. Sugar being like one of them, right? So we have different grades of sugar. You have brown sugar, uh, molasses, white sugar. Uh, they all command different prices. But at, for white sugar, you're going to pay the price that the market has set for it. Um, and so for us, like commodities, monoculture, commodities and monoculture essentially go hand in hand, right? Like you have to build a system that is, uh, that commodifies everything, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I sometimes think humans are commodities to them. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Definitely. What was it that brought us away from the, our ancestral ways of living? Like, I think you spoke of like. 2,500 years ago, where that big shift went from hunter-gatherer to the agricultural revolution? What what dictated that shift? Uh, it's um, We don't know. Um, and so it's a really interesting sort of origin myth. Um, we have enormous amounts of speculation about it. Um, we, we think that there was some degree of climatic change that forced people to be more sedentary. Uh, we think that there were these sort of mega events, um, like ecological events, uh, that fundamentally changed things that, um, we also think that there may have been some degree of human ingenuity that went into it. Um, so if you, um, so, uh, if you build, uh, like small water systems that start to feed, uh, uh, like nut trees or something like that, then you start to know, you, you can sort of predict where a harvest might be. Now, if you can predict where the harvest might be, you might be a little bit more sedentary. So then you start to stay there because you know the calories are coming. Um, you know, any number of different reasons. You have every single origin. You think about every religion on this planet has an origin story <laughs> in some ways. Um, we have our own origin stories that we call scientific, and I think most of them are mythologies. Um, we Their uh, economics has its own story um, where uh, they say some maybe somebody had uh, uh, went out and hunted. Uh, and this, I think, is actually a really an interesting story. Um, so economics will tell you that somebody went out and did, did a hunt, say they killed a bear. Um, and so they had the, the pelt of this bear. And so they had excess of that. They produced like a, you know, garments for themselves, but they had an excess. And so they wanted to actually barter for something. Uh, and they went and this person had a harvest of apples. And so they bartered that for that. 
that person had also had an excess of apples, but they all they needed new shoes, so they bartered for that. And then, say the person who needed new shoes also needed a pelt, so he took the apples and also gave you know like a, some yeah. sort of like triumvirate. Um, and so we've said that that was sort of the beginning of that. Um, if you wanted to create a system where you could, in essence, sort of get something without actually having the bartering object, then you produce money. And so you create some sort of thing that is a uh, um, like a, a stand-in uh, for you know uh, for the product, um, and so that's how money produces. Uh, it's an origin story, and it's I think it's complete mythology. So hunter-gatherer societies um, are so different and prolifically different in terms of culture that it's really really hard to say like with with certainty like how ones operate, but we do, we, we do have some degree of certainties that seem to follow some rules um, over time. And one of them is that practically everything is shared, you know, mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. everything is shared. Uh, and so if you, um, I've studied a lot of hunter-gatherer societies. So um, if, you, if you're producing arrows, say you want to go out and hunt, um, those arrows are shared with the hunters so that if one hunter goes and he kills, um, he takes down that animal, um, was it him that took down the animal or was it the arrow that was made by his friend, right? Um, and so everything is shared. So there's a, there's a lovely story of an anthropologist who had spent like, you know, two years with a hunter-gatherer society and he wanted to go and actually thank them for their time. And he went, um, and so he went and he bought like a, the biggest calf that he could uh, to bring back to the group, right? Um, so he went to the market, he bought this calf, uh, he brought it back and everybody looks at him and he's like, man, they're like, man, like, I, like I moved away from the fire for this. This is the scrawniest like calf I've ever seen. Like, I don't even want to eat this thing. There's no, there's no meat on it, you know? And he's like, what the hell? <laughs> You know, he was like, I bought the fattest calf I could, you know, and it was a gift. And so somebody pulls him aside and they're like, no, no, no. So this is what we do is that no matter who you are, we're going to make fun of you because as soon as you think that you are giving a gift to the group as opposed to sharing it, then you start to think that you're a little bit better than the rest of us, right? You're the best killer. You're the best person out there. Um, and so you start to get ahead. Next, next thing you know, you're telling us exactly what to do. And next thing you know, maybe you're trying to take on two wives instead of one. Right? And, and so there, there are all of these different cultural mores in place that say, listen, uh, we have to make sure that everybody understands that this system only operates when we don't have ego involved in everything. Mm. Um, and so maybe there was a blip where, you know, suddenly, um, you know, the, people came more sedentary uh, and started to hold on to things. But now you started to produce product, right? So now you're building an agricultural revolution. So say you're producing grains and you have this now commodity that you hold on to um, and you can't share it, right? You have to hold on to it because the wealth is generated within that commodity. So now you build the silo to hold off that food from everybody else so that you can give it out whenever you want. Well, now you need to build an army to guard that, right? Um, And now you need a king. Now that king is the person who's going to tell you exactly what to do. He has a queen. Uh, He needs to make sure that the son that is produced is his own son. So that you have the 
patriarchal lineage that goes all the way through. And now you have the divide of all of these different things that kind of happen where it's like you have the kings, the merchants, the army, um, and then you have the peasants. Um, and so you start to see this formation of this other thing that we live in nowadays where we have presidents and businessmen mm. and all of these different things. But uh, for hunter-gatherer societies, this would never work. Right. It would never work. It would destroy all equilibrium uh, and it would destroy all uh, cohesion within the group and it would quickly fall apart. So if an, from an evolutionary perspective, none of that stuff actually makes a lot of sense. Um, but we started this experiment you know, 12,000 years ago, right? So we created this thing that is civilization today. Mm. And we we excised women's rights. Um, that's one of the first things to go. A lot of hunter-gatherer studies are, are matriarchal. Mm. Um, you know, the women produce the children. Uh, they have a lot more power. Um, and they also produce more calories. Um, you know, so the men go out on a hunt. Uh, success is never guaranteed. Um, but the women are generally bringing in a lot more calories. Um, and there is no, like, we also have women hunters as well. So we, we've, we've seen that through the anthropological record. So even just some of the divides that we say are, you know, men hunt and, you know, men barbecue and you know, <laughs> women <laughs> gather. A, a lot of those things are, uh, they're just mythologies that we like to live with. Um, and so, you know, uh, but with the creation of, of these things, what you now has is the hoarding of food. What you start to see is uh, very significant declines in human health because we're no longer we're eating these like single commodity products over and over again. Uh, remember, we were talking about like 1600 edible species of plants, yeah. uh, you know, within miles of the hunter gatherers. Now we're just eating breads. And uh, if you're in the Americas, it, it's corn is primary. Uh, if you're in, in Asiatic countries, Asia, uh, rice is the primary grain uh, in the US. Uh, I'm sorry, in the Middle East, it becomes wheat. Mm. Uh, so now you're eating this nutrient deficient diet. Uh, you start to see our brains start to shrink. Um, so hunter gatherers have, uh, a very, very, like, um, the way we measure intelligence is very different, but we, the brain capacity, brain size, uh, is much bigger in hunter gatherer societies. So we start to see our brain starts to shrink, uh, our bodies start to really fall apart. Uh, we're no longer getting the nutrients. Uh, we shrink, we get smaller. Um, and because now we're hoarding this food, we have other societies that also covet that food that are also hoarding their own food. So then we create war mm. <laughs> and we mm -hmm. create war and conquest and conquest becomes the, the new sort of elements of bringing fertility back into um, our agricultural system. So once we've exhausted the land, then we must continue to move. Uh, we keep on growing bigger and bigger. Um, and then we create all of these different hierarchies and ideas of what civilization is um, and then we start to tell ourselves our, the story is, what are human beings? Human beings are civilization builders. Well, we weren't. We weren't for 2 million years, right? So 99% of our existence, we lived very, very differently. Um, but we have to tell ourselves that this is, you know, this is the thing. And for me, like, we're, I feel like we're just going to run ourselves into the ground because this is the mythology. This is the only thing that matters. Like, we we don't know another story to tell ourselves other than this, mm. you know? Yeah. So you spoke to we're civilization creators. Now that's what we tell 
ourselves that we are as human beings. What were we when we were in this hunter gatherer ancestral ways of living? Would you say? Um, I mean, I, I think we were, we were small bands and tribes of, uh, of, uh, non-nuclear families, mm. uh, that everyone cared for each other. So there's a, uh, an anthropologist, a writer by the name of, um, uh, I think her name is June Leadloff. Uh, she wrote a book called the continuum concept and she was, um, she was inadvertently studying, uh, anxiety and, um, and, and fear-based culture. Uh, mm-hmm. And she had spent uh, a lot of her formative years in, I think it was studying with a tribe in South America. Um, and so what she had noticed was um, babies are always held. If they were hungry, they were always fed. If they weren't being held by the mother, they were held by somebody else. Um, and so the years and years of constant touch and companionship. Um, and what she had noticed was most of uh, the, the tribe was, in, insanely happy. Uh, there was very little anxiety. Uh, people felt like loved and cared for um, in in myriad different ways. And a lot of that is because they weren't like we we're, we're living in an environment that is not conducive to our evolutionary past. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, a lot of the ways that we raise children nowadays is essentially like built by these weird psychologists in the 1950s who said, you know, you have to ferber your children and keep them excised and they have to live by themselves. And if you touch them too much, they're essentially blank slates and everything was about domination and control. Um, and so like the, the sort of distinction between the way that we raise our children and hunter gatherers is just so, so different, um, that I think, um, uh, one, one of my favorite stories is about the Pitaha Indians who live in Brazil. Um, if their house gets knocked over, they laugh. Uh, if they, you know, go out on a hunt and they don't catch something, they laugh. Uh, they live in a, in a state that we wouldn't recognize yeah. <laughs> in yeah. civilization. Um, so what it, what it does is it, again, it, it becomes not a, a, a good environment for humans, uh, but, uh, the way that we raise people, uh, the way that we treat people nowadays is not a good environment for humans. It is a great environment for civilization, mm-hmm. right? If you can yes. have, if you can raise somebody in an environment where they get a minimal of love, if they get the minimum of the basic nutrients and requirements that they need in order to feel loved and cared for, uh, you can create an environment where you can build all of this. You mm-hmm. Space shuttles and you know, any number of different things. Yeah. Does that feed into the the thought that humans are a commodity? It, oh, what, 100%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're much yeah. more, mani- what's a, they can be controlled a lot yeah. more when they grow yeah. up in, in that environment. It's interesting. I'm looking at purchasing this property right now and there would be three homes on the land. And so my mom would live in one and I'm just like, oh my gosh, to have like, you know, kind of homesteading and people around me all the time feels so foreign, but that's how we used to live. And it would be so beautiful. It will be so beautiful to have people around when we're sick or to share and to build together. And, you know, just that communal aspect to life where we're not on our own and doing it on our own, but aspects of it terrify me if I'm 
completely, completely honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, oh I'm, dear. Yeah. 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 I'm an introvert. It's, it, um, I, I love to be around people. Um, but I, uh, it, it is generally on my terms. Um, and, uh, I always need to create time and space for myself, uh, in order to, to work and think and, you know, all of those things. Um, I don't think that that is, um, uh, antithetical to hunter gatherers. Um, I know that there, uh, a lot of the priestly class will actually, um, spend a lot of time away from the group, uh, in order to know it better. Um, so I do think that there is an evolutionary response to that. Like take the yeah. time that you need to be you. Yeah. 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 Those, yeah. Space on your own is integral. Hello, loves. Just interrupting the show for one quick moment to let you all know about a product that I absolutely love and that I am an affiliate for. As you all know, I have been going through quite the healing journey these past six or so months and insomnia was part of that. And my go-to for insomnia is pearl powder. And it is also amazing. It's been used in Chinese medicine for thousands and thousands of years for our skin and bones. It's full of minerals and it is so nourishing. So, so nourishing. And so my favorite company to purchase my pearl powder, my pearl of the sea is from Wild Holistic. I love their small batch, cozy, comfy business style. And it is absolutely a pleasure to purchase their products. And my go-tos are the earth drops full of vulvic acid and humic acid and pearl of the sea and the healing body, which is turmeric, ginger, and holy basil full of anti-inflammatory goodness. And so there is a link for Wild Holistic in the show notes. And if you use discount code LISA, capital L, capital I, capital S, capital A, all capitals, use discount code LISA, you will receive a 10% discount on checkout. And I am an affiliate of the company because I use their product and I fully stand by it. And so by purchasing through my link, you are supporting the podcast. Part of the proceeds go to me and I am so, 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 so grateful. So yeah, back to the show. Where did you live with hunter-gatherer families, communities? Me? Yeah. Oh, I thought, did you live with them? No, no, no. Okay. Um, okay. I, yeah. I, um, I had spent a little bit of time in Tanzania. Um, uh, uh, sorry, a little bit of time in Tanzania and a little bit of time in Botswana uh, with uh, hunter-gatherers, but I would never say that I've, I've studied them. I've just studied people who have spent a lot of time with them. Yeah. Um, and, and there's so much, I mean, some of the, there's, there's stories that I remember forever, like anthropologists, uh, who have just completely had their minds blown by certain ideas and concepts. One of my, one of my absolute favorite stories, um, Again, it, it's uh, it, there's always like that moment when the anthropologist is leaving story. Um, so again, it's uh, 
a uh, anthropologist that spent a year and a half. Um, uh, the details are always wrong in my story. Sorry, I always get the gist, the real point of the story. Uh, but he was he was getting ready to leave, and he wanted to give a gift again uh, so that people remember him. Um, and so he went. Uh, he had a pocket watch. Um, and so he decided he was going to give a pocket watch to the group. And so he presented them with it and they looked at him with disgust and they said, we don't want that. <laughs> and he was like, but I don't understand. Like you were like, you were enthralled with this every single time I, I, I you know, I looked at it and they were like, there were two things that we were enthralled by one. Every time you pulled it out, um, you either said something rude or you left us. Mm. Right. Um, and so we, we were in like enthralled with the idea that this little thing had so much power over you, you know? And when we mm -hmm. think about time, uh, hunter gatherers do not think about time the way that we do. Um, the 20th century has created a time construct, um, by which everything is dependent upon that, right? Like you and I would not have met up today if we didn't make a decision that, you know, uh, with time differences and everything like that. But the 20th century really sort of codified what we think of uh, as time. Um, and the times that I have been the rudest and the harshest on my children were always centered around time. Get mm -hmm. to school on time, uh, doctor's appointments on time, um, you know, have to get to the airport. Kids have no concept of time. Um, it has to be like almost nailed into them. And a lot of hunter gatherers think of time in thousand year increments. They'll say, you, you know, remember the great flood of, you know, that our ancestors, ancestors talked about. Um, but their world, the microcosm of their world changes like fluidly, but not in the way that we think. Um, and so for me, like as an active, like very imaginative person, I always try to wonder what that looks like. Right. Mm, so like uh -huh. Aboriginal, uh, Australian Aboriginals, um, the story goes that they had no concept of the movement of time, um, that they didn't see birth and death uh, in the same way that we do. And so I'm like, how did you do that? Like, how did you see a baby born and grow and eventually like reach a point where it got older, but you don't see it as a passage of time? Like, do you only see it as a cycle? You know, like I, I, I want to like at some point if like, if there was a heaven like that I would love to just ask God to experience like have me experience the way that they experience time. Yeah. <laughs> it would That's be so an cool. interesting way to look at things. Yeah. Just a cycle. Yeah. Yeah, it's like mother earth, she doesn't look at time. It's just she goes through these seasons and these cycles. Yeah. 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 Hmm. That's uh yeah. How did you get into producing documentaries? Uh, so I had I had spent close to a decade. Um, I ran a nonprofit, founded and ran a nonprofit um, where we worked with inner city kids um, and public schools on overhauling school food. Um, and what I found was uh, after a decade of fundraising and uh, spending a lot. More and more time over the course of that decade, decade spending um, uh, more and more time with fundraisers than with the children. I get really frustrated with uh, our concept of uh, cycles of poverty um, in in the West. Um, I can say it's worldwide, but 
we have this tendency to think of um, uh, poverty as a choice. Like you, you crawl your way out of it if you build yourself up by your bootstraps or pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, and so we had had these long form conversations. Um, my partner in, um, in the founding of it was a, uh, independent film producer. Um, and I said, well, what if we started to look at documentaries, um, and we started to fund documentaries that would be these higher form conversations about all of the myriad, uh, problems that happen in, in, in our world today, but like from the point of view of, um, very specific things, the environment, social justice issues, and cycles of poverty. Um, and so we, it was a loose constitution. We never really had like, you know, I remember at one point we had gotten a documentary on the sort of immigrant experience of, you know, people who had replayed Fiddler on the Roof, uh, you know, in, in all of these different places across the globe. Uh, so the, what is the immigrant experience of them performing uh, the sort of, you know, like, the, this sort of quintessential play. Uh, another one was like United States of America, where these like sort of like harbor zones where a lot of the um, like African-American and black community, they would go to these indoor uh, like roller skating rinks. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like a safe place where they could just hang out and listen to music and party and dance and, you know, just be in a place where they could just be themselves and not be like a black person in America. Right. Um, sort of like that invisible man type of thing mm-hmm. where it's like, that's the first thing that we see. Uh, and so it, it was loose constitution, right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. like good stories uh, centered around like uh, beautiful ideals um, and like what, what that actually looks like. So we did about five documentaries um, and we realized it's nearly impossible to make money off of doing this, <laughs> you know? Um and uh, so I started producing on my own. Uh, Sacred Cow was one of the, one of the first films that I produced on um, by myself, sort of semi independently from the group, because uh, I so believed in what Diana was saying. Uh, and so that, and then Death in the Garden will probably be, I would say, probably my last and final film. You when know? does that one come out? Because that one's not out yet. No. So we're um, I we're still somewhere ambling between. Uh, production and post-production. Uh, and and a lot of the stuff that we're actually talking about today uh, is we're trying to give sort of a, a anti-civilizational response to the, a lot of the problems that are pressing today. Um, and so we're trying to tell a new story. Um, and so the way that I tried to describe it, if I was on an elevator, if I had to describe it to somebody, is that I, most of the major way the the social structure and religious structure of this world says says that we used to, in, in many myriad different ways, we said that we used to live in a Garden of Eden um, and that we were excised and thrown out of that, um, that there was something fundamentally wrong with human beings, uh, that we can't live in accord with the environment in which we spent millions of years evolving in. Um, and I think that we need to tell ourselves a different story. Um, and if we can tell it, because that's what we are, we're storytelling yeah. you know, primates, right? That's yeah. What, yeah. in essence what we are. Um, but the, the, the overall story that we've been told for the last 12,000 years is that there's something fundamentally wrong with us, um, that we have to be controlled. Um, and the only way to keep this whole thing going is to, you know, is to take all of the sort of evil and selfish elements of us and, and utilize 
whole systems and structures to 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 um, to you know hold forth and and make sure that people are controlled. Um, and we think that's just that's how we get to where we are. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So. What is that you spoke earlier with sustainable dish and just what the best environment looks like for humans mentally, physically, spiritually? What does that look like? The best environment <laughs> for humans. <laughs> so I, I like to say, kid. yeah, I like to say I give descriptions, not prescriptions. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I am. Um, you know, I don't. Um, I I think uh, let's uh, well let's just use as a metaphor social media, right? So the promise of social media was it was bring it was bringing a connected world together. Um, unfortunately, it's like it's it's not particularly profitable, right? So profit means uh, that you create discord and you create a, a sense of um, alienation, and then you sell a product right afterwards. Um, you know, so I think one of the things that I under, I've started to understand about the sort of influ- information and the computer revolution uh, was that a lot of the stuff that I study is the same stuff that a lot of these um, marketers and, uh, you know, advertisers and tech companies study as well. Uh, they just use the stuff that I study um, and reverse it and use it to further alienate people. So we have to start to build something that actually builds a genuine connection between people. Um, and a lot of that means that we have to sort of start to excise ourselves from uh, the pharmaceutical model of there, there's something fundamentally wrong with our brains, that so we have a chemistry imbalance in our brains. Um, there, um, we have very hypersensitive people who grow up in an educational system that just doesn't work for them. And when they feel so alienated from this, what I consider a completely schizophrenic way of educating people, right? Um, you know, away from nature, away from curiosity, away from uh, a sort of top-down, total authoritarian way of educating people. Um uh, we start to remove people from some of the aspects of of that alienation, so that they can start to build genuine connections around there. So the sort of chemical and biological model of of mental uh, health and needs to be. Uh, we just need to excise ourselves from that. So, um, I did a really wonderful podcast recently with um, uh, um, the book is uh, Robert Whitaker's Anatomy of an Epidemic. Um, and he he has sort of become a lightning rod, but he is an investigative journalist uh, who did a sort of a really deep dive into a lot of the history of psychology. Um, and if you look at psychology in the 20th century, 85% of it was about creating systems of control, right? Mm. Um, we, we need to understand what human beings are. We're going to make up a story of what they are, and we're going to devise and, and come up with people methodologies and systems of control. control. Uh, so psychologists worked with governments, they worked with advertisers, they worked with any number of different things to, to hold people in place uh, and to get them to sort of start to build, uh, like um, be sort of centered around this idea of like constant consumption. Um, and the best way to do that is to traumatize people, alienate them, and then give them a product that's going to, you know, like solve all those problems. Yeah. Um, and, and, and no way want to disparage therapists uh, and people like working within the therapeutic community. Um, I think they're doing 
amazing and valuable work. Um, but I look, if you look in the history of psychology, like early 1920s, like Harvard head of psychology would say statements like women can't go and do a uh, higher education because they'll become infertile. I mean, that was the height of psychology at the time. Wow. <laughs> if they think too hard, they'll become infertile. Wow. Interesting. Right? Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. a wonder, there's a wonderful book. It's called mad, bad and sad. And it goes like very deeply into the, uh, psychology's war on women. Um, yeah. And it, it's a really interesting read. Um, so I think, uh, uh, and you know, for, for us, the food element of it is, is again, like the perfect parable and metaphor. Um, you can create an incredibly nutrient dense diet. Um, but what we have allowed was an enormous amount of industry influence, uh, Coca-Cola, sugar industry, uh, ultra processed food industry. Um, they, they, uh, pay for, and in myriad different ways, all of the studies that exonerate their junk, uh, and vilify like meat and, you know, eggs and dairy and cheese and very traditional foods. Um, so we have to start to decouple uh, that sort of revolving door between government and these multi-billion, multi-billion dollar, you know, multinational corporations. Um, they essentially write policy, uh, nutritional policy. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, like, I, I don't think it's in any way going to happen during my lifetime, but at least somebody needs to say, like, how much of this stuff um, is part of that. Um, yeah. The well, there's a lot coming to the light. Yeah. There is a lot coming yeah. to the light with the inversions or distortions with the pharmaceutical companies, uh, with government, with media, yeah. all working together. And so I'm not much younger than you. I'm 43. I hope we start to see a big shift in our lifetime. I, I think we have to. Yeah. When I started the nonprofit I don't think um, anybody was talking about food. Michael Pollan's book had just come out. Um, we started to see a, a sort of real renaissance um, in with like, you know, when I grew up, a tomato was red. I mean, it was yeah. actually sort of like whitish pink. pink. Uh, but it, it, yeah, I mean, we, we have, we sort of built um, some, some degree of sort of like edifice around the, the idea that the West actually does have some, you know, beautiful food cultures. Um, I think that we lionize the wrong people, celebrity chefs mm -hmm. and everything like that. Um, but I think we started to really sort of push for something different. Um, the problem is that the the food industry is, um, they're so good at co-opting activism. You know, there was, there was a, um, during a lot of the, uh, 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 actually, I don't even want to go into that story. Um, they, they're, particularly good at taking anything that is going on nowadays um, and then utilizing that language in order to make it look like they're um, their allies um, to any substantive change. Um, I had a friend of mine who was, he's a top chef um, in New York. He had started a nonprofit um, and it was primarily centered around a report card for um, sitting congressmen. Uh, what is their, uh, their report card on food policy? You get an A or you get an F. If you're completely devoted to big agriculture, then you know you're going to get downgraded. Uh, and it was a way to sort of name and shame a lot of people who were, you know, um, just taking 
tons of money from uh, pesticides and, you know, pharmaceutical companies and Monsanto and, you know, any number of different things. Um, and so it was a small and nimble group of people. Um, the head of that, um, she, and the organization sort of crumbled after she left. Um, she was primary, the primary head, the, the head chef wasn't, he, he just was, didn't have the time to be able to devote to all of it. Um, but, um, the, she was essentially poached McDonald's hired her offered her three times the salary, just gone. It took all of that intellectual capital and all of that work and wisdom. And they said, listen, we'll just give you a ton of money and you just come work for us, you know? And so that like the, the level to which they are willing to sort of like co-opt, um, you know, anything is just, it's so extraordinary. Yeah. Um, they paid Harvard scientists in the sixties to obfuscate the role of, of sugar, um, in heart disease, um, they are, uh, they, Coca-Cola created this, like, uh, the Institute of, uh, lifestyle science. That was this fake marketing group, uh, that was supposed to obfuscate the role of diet and say that people just don't move enough, uh, which then became the centerpiece of Michelle Obama's let's move program. You can't exercise yourself out of bad diet, unfortunately, mm -hmm. you know, um, mm -hmm. the only people who seem to be able to do that and maintain are people who are like ultra marathoners and people are professional athletes. Um, but it does eventually sort of creep up on them. Diet is everything. It's probably yeah. 80, 90% of, of that. Um, and we, like we, when I walk through again, like a supermarket, I am in awe that we have maybe 14 uh, companies that dominate most of our food system. 14. That is a tier, near mono, monopoly on our food system. And they give you this illusion of abundance, right? Illusion of choice, right? You see all of that stuff. It's, an, it's a total illusion of choice. You're essentially, regardless of what choice you make on that shelf, you're essentially buying from these, these same companies. Um, you know, and so it's really difficult. Um, they hate, uh, there was a podcast that I listened to uh, on a new book that just came out called Ultra Processed People. Um, and Chris kind of broke my heart. He's, it's a new book that came out. But he was like, you know how much of our pensions and our retirement programs are paid into these companies? Like you can't, they, they have infiltrated so many aspects of our lives that if we, we would in essence be shooting ourselves in the foot if we tried to remove ourselves from these companies. And that just really pissed me off. It pissed me off. Like you wouldn't believe, right? Because they get you in every single way, you know? They, they've infiltrated every memory that you have, uh, movies that you saw growing up. Um, I'm sure you remember Skittles with like, was it? No, it wasn't Skittles. It was that peanut, Reese's Pieces and E.T. Um, mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. every like sports event you ever went to, every childhood memory you ever had, uh, they are there. You know, um, yeah. they're, they are, they're, they know that they can manipulate you enough to, uh, so that those memories, if they can create, if they can get you early enough, like the cigarette companies, if they can get you early enough, you are uh, a consumer for life and you consume their product, whether yeah. it's Pepsi or Coke or Marlboro or Camel, uh, they know they're probably going to have you for life. Yeah. You know? You spoke to the mental health, you know, I'm going to call it a crisis that's happening right now. There's a mental health crisis and addiction seems to have gone through the roof post mm -hmm. COVID maybe. How, what would you say would be 
some ways that people struggling with mental health can restore that, like come into a balanced state outside of the pharmaceutical industry? Um, I, I do. I genuinely believe that diet is a, a, a lever. Um, it is something that we at least have uh, some degree of control over. Um, I think it's also incumbent upon us to realize that it's not our fault. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you are raised in a zoo and you are fed zoo food, um, it's the gamekeeper who's at fault, right? If you get sick. Um, and so I think it's really incumbent upon us to understand and, and forgive ourselves um, because we, we are a product of an environment. They view us as a... As, like we're a consumer. Like they call us what, what they think that they are. We, we are right. They call us a consumer. That's all they want us. Um, so understanding that, uh, is really important. Um, I do think that there, um, the, the diet wars is, is particularly hard to, uh, you know, I've been studying it for 15, 20 years. Um, I actually hate it. You know, so one of the things I I would love people to be sort of more educated on, um, and I'm sure you've seen this all before. It's um, uh, say dairy has been associated with breast cancer. Uh, you know, um, nutritional studies that make these uh, sort of semi outrageous claims, either for the health of a food. Um, so there was a study that was, uh, I think it came out in the 90s. It said something, and you can find actually 60s uh, advertisements. Um, if you have sugar before dinner, you consume less calories. Um, the, no, the study in the 90s said that kids who uh, had uh, breakfast cereal um, you know, and sugar um, actually perform better in schools. These are all just fundamentally paid for uh, by these um, companies. Um, they are avid liars about everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're so, not a fan. I get that you're not a yeah. fan. <laughs> <laughs> That's so wild. Yeah. Well, about growing up and you might've experienced the same thing, but the crazy diets that yeah. my mom did, you know, yeah. the cabbage soup diet. And it was just so wild. So yeah. we, we lived with that and that cereal is going to help you. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm, you can picture a lot of those, right? You'd see that the balanced breakfast, remember the photo? It was toast uh, with maybe some margarine on top. It was an orange juice uh, and then a breakfast cereal and then maybe a grapefruit or something like that. It was like this thing that was it all sold to us in, in yeah. myriad different ways. Yeah. Um, I think that there is um, – yeah, I mean I think that there's um, – they're, um, uh, I've, I've been talking about this more and more with a lot of people um, because I think it's, it's sort of incumbent upon us to understand um, that the educational system that we grew up in was designed very specifically for a purpose. Um, the, you can look at it, um, the sort of history of uh, compulsory education. It started in the early part of the 20th century. And there's a famous quote by uh, Woodrow Wilson, who was um, the, you know, the president, um, Woodrow Wilson. He, and I'm going to sort of butcher it. I always butcher it. I should actually just memorize it. But it said, we want to create uh, sort of two classes, two systems, uh, one that will have the benefits of a, a classical education uh, that is based upon dialectic and 
di- like dialogue and response um, that is, uh, and then we want to create another class uh, that will never question anything that will be prepared perfectly for the factories and never question whether that they belong there. Um, and I think most of us were sort of raised that environment. Um, our educational system was very hierarchical. Um, when you, when I, I, I taught, you know, for about 10 years, um, most of my conversations with kids were questions, uh, for them. Uh, I want them to be able to have dialogue with me. I am not an authority in that room. Uh, and so it is meant to be dialectical, um, meaning, um, if if they, they don't, I don't want them to believe anything that I tell them. I want them to question you know, what the teacher says. I want that dialogue to be the stuff that we grew up in. When you see, when you read Plato's Republic, it is a dialogue among people. Um, it is a question and response and it is never from the position of authority by which somebody tells you like what is true and what is not. So we are raised in that environment. Um, and so like we see that within all hierarchical systems, uh, within companies and within governments and any number of different things. Um, and so I think we sort of had to start to exercise, excise ourselves from a lot of the, the, um, the sort of base elements of that, um, to realize like you can, you'll prop, if you want to learn something, if you really want to learn something, if I fell in love with this gorgeous Spanish woman, I would learn Spanish very quickly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, how do you build a relationship with education, uh, that, uh, builds curiosity. Um, and for me, curiosity is based on emotion. Uh, I am not a rational educator. Um, when I remember things and I have a pretty good memory, uh, I always tie it to emotions. Um, I do not think of these things in a very, like the very systematic and methodolo- methodological way that says I am removed from the emotion of the system. Uh, I have a good memory because I'm attaching it to emotion. Um, and so like I've spent the last five years studying economics, um, something I would never have thought that would be interesting to me. Um, but I, I just dived really, really deep into it. Um, because I was like, why do I not want to learn this? Um, why do I think this is, you know, uh, unintelligible to me and boring? Uh, and what I found was, uh, I mean, first, uh, it's a religious institution, most of economics is a religious institution. Um, they had come up with a concept uh, around the time that physics had started to really develop. Mathematics and physics had developed into a discipline uh, and chemistry where you could come up with a theory and then create a product, uh, test that product and make something happen. Um, and so all of the sciences wanted to be to sort of codify them their, themselves in that way. Uh, and so economics said, well, we're a science as well. And we're going to come up with all these numbers and graphs and charts and, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of these different things. And But for the most part, what they were trying to do was build a scientific uh, sort of encapsulation of what human beings are, right? Another system of control. Um, and so it's a story that we told ourselves. And we, li- we layer mathematics on top of it, but it's essentially a mythology. Um, mm-hmm. And psychology is in, in some ways very similar to that. Um, the sort of codification of all of the elements of what we consider to be maladies, um, the problems that we have today, uh, how we self-diagnose. I have OCD, I have ADHD, I can't pay attention, uh, any number of different things. 
Um, all of those things were in essence sort of built by 14 old like white men sitting in a room, you know, codifying yeah. all of the problems that are humanity. Right. Mm, you know, mm -hmm, if you, mm -hmm. if you enjoy sensuous pleasure, you have a problem. If you really like sensuous pleasure, like the things that bring us joy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, any number of different things are all like we, we have codified all of the maladies of the world and we, we have no sense of what it, what is to be uh, like a proper and right functioning human being. Like there's no definition for that in psychology. Right. I mean, we just know all of the problems that we are. Yeah. 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 How, I hope I'm not talking too much. Oh, no. <laughs> That's beautiful. I think, you know, with mental health, what um, comes to mind too on my own journey is meat as part mm. of the diet. You know, a lot of people struggle with mental health that have been vegan. And so just that diet can play into it. Animal fats are such an important part to brain health and cognition and all of that kind of stuff. And so, just adding that to the conversation around diet and mental health. Yeah. Animals yeah, are um, part of that. Uh, iron deficiency is one of the most prevalent and common deficiencies in the world. Um, it affects people in uh, developing countries and affects people in first world countries, um, especially women, uh, especially women of reproductive age. Um, it, heme iron that you're going to get from red meat and from a lot of meats, um, is much more bioavailable. Um, and so women on a 28 day cycle, um, they're, they need a lot more iron, um, in order to maintain fertility. Um, we've, uh, all of these different nutrients, folic acid and choline that we've discovered over the, you know, the past 50 years, B12, um, a, a lot of them are associated with, um, mental health. Um, if you're deficient or uh, insufficient, then you're going to experience um, any number of myriad different uh, issues. Um, and so it is difficult nowadays. It's getting harder and harder to get um, uh, even those nutrients, even in meat. I think we're starting to see a decline. Um, that to go back to what we were starting from before, you can grow plants with three basic elements, uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, and uh, potassium, but that is the minimum required, right? Um, human, like we need a lot more micronutrients. Uh, we need a lot more nutrients than, than what we're currently using to produce food. Yeah. Um, and so we've seen a decline in, in nutrients, uh, uh, density, even in vegetables over the years. Um, and if you're feeding chickens monoculture, then it's a lot harder to get a lot of those nutrients from their eggs and from their meat as well. Um, so it's, yeah. it's, it's sort of like, I don't, I, I never want to scare people, you know, because it, it's always, you know, like when, when you start to look into a lot of this stuff, you start to realize like, wow, there's a lot going on here. Um, you know, uh, the, there is a lot going on. <laughs> there is. And you yeah. have to choose your rabbit holes is, you know, which, mm -hmm. where you want to start digging into what's going on under the surface, because I think we're seeing a lot of the, the things that were always at play, but now we're seeing them come to the light. And so choosing where you want to dig a little deeper and question things so that you don't start to lose your mental health, right? Because it's like when you remove the veil and see what's truly going on, there's a lot of self-responsibility with that you you can't close that box once you've opened it yeah 
And, you know, like for me, the mantra I tell myself is to try to be strong so I can be helpful. Um, yeah. And so it's important for me to be able to, um, you know, to, you know, put out this message and talk to people and, um, you know, and also give people like a certain degree of, uh, you know, solace, um, you know, because it is hard, like you're raising children in this environment and, yeah. um, yeah. yeah. And there are things we can do to, you know, when you spoke to this vision of the best environment for humans, there are steps that we can take to work towards that. Can you name a few of those steps? Absolutely. Yeah. That's um, joyous. So, yeah. So always really fun to think of the things that you can do for free um, mm. that nobody's been able to commodify yet. Yes. <laughs> so time in nature, right? Mm. Uh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely an integral. Um, you know, I think it's so incumbent upon us to spend a lot more time in nature. Forest bathing, uh, the Japanese call it. Um, uh, you know, the stress response, um, the or sort of the anti-stress response of, of spending time in nature. Um, and if it is anxiety producing for you, um, that, that will, I, that will go down over time, the more time you spend in it. Um, one of the things that I've started to do a lot more, um, is, uh, same thing with the grasses. It's like when, you know, when you first see, see grass, uh, you think, oh, well, it's just grass. And then you start to see, you know, this incredible amount of, uh, diversity, uh, in those grasses. Um, when you walk through the forest, um, you at first start to see trees and ground. Um, you will, uh, over time start to see it just the most amazing diversity of plant life there. Um, mushrooms and different times of year. If you walk the same, you know, like place, you, you will just start to see the most amazing diversity. Um, uh, the other part of it is the experience of awe. Um, try to chase it as much as you possibly can. Uh, I think that is so important to me. Um, and I find it in art. Um, I find it in, uh, for me and like great writers like Rebecca Solnit or, uh, you know, like Ralph Ellison or Richard Wright, um, uh, you know, uh, spending a lot more time in other people's heads when they have like a beautiful argument of the world. Um, Rebecca Solnit wrote a book called Orwell's Roses um, that I just reread for the fifth time. <laughs> so mm -hmm. um, it is one of the most profound books. I just love it to death. Um, so yeah, so chase awe as much as you yeah. possibly can. Um, spend time in sunlight. Um, I think we've grown to one of the weirder aspects of our world is we actually live in fear of all of the stuff that is so beautiful, <laughs> you mm, know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, article. I don't yeah. want to bring back the things to be scared of, but there was a news article, I think in the New York times about avoiding the sun Yeah. and how you have to avoid the sun to stay healthy. And they had a picture of a woman like fully, you know, covered and I live up on the ocean. I live on the ocean. And I see people quite frequently now fully covered. And it's like coming back to that question, everything, because sunlight is so healing and necessary. And it's like the creator of our universe, like God, would not put this big ball in the <laughs> sky 
that is going to harm us. You know, like it just, yeah. So it's just like questioning that narrative because the sun is one of the most healing things for us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else can I think of? Um, I, I find um, crafts and hobbies that you will get better over time uh, that you can, you can subdivide into places where you start out um, cooking being one of them, um, you know, infinite variety um, and infinite creativity in cooking. Um, you know, like, listen, all right. And I've done this before on podcasts, but where I'm like teaching cooking, I'm teaching cooking on a podcast. How do you do that? Well, right. So, but look, um, you say you can't cook. Maybe some dude who's like, oh, I can't cook. Like, Jesus Christ, like we got to get over this stuff, right? Um, it is one of the most amazing experiences you'll ever have. Um, it is uh, learn knife skills, like learn how to utilize that. Um, start to understand how your taste buds work um, and be forgiving that you're going to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. Like it happens to the best of us. I still have times where, you know, I made a, a meal for 12 people and I overcooked the porchetta. Um, and, you know, to me, everybody was like, wow, this is absolutely delicious to me. I'm like, you bastard, you messed up. <laughs> but like, there are so many different elements to that where it's like you, because we, uh, there is, there are so many different functions of what happens to the food before it even enters into your shopping bag that you have no control over. Um, and so sometimes you're not going to make the perfect meal, but you have to start to go towards things that you're going to be doing for 30 years and you'll still be learning stuff. Um, and so it, and you're good, like, you're going to suck for a very long time, you know? Um, but you can, it's something to chase. Like what, what are we on this planet for? Like to, to be perfect at everything when we start out, it's like, it's ridiculous. Um, so cooking to me is one of those. Um, and then just like, just curiosity, you know, um, start to just walk around the environment that surrounds you and ask you like, you, the, uh, unfortunately the internet and the computer age has given us this incredible thing that we can go and we say, all right, well, I've, you know, I'm just looking around. It's like, how does electricity work? You can look that up, right? <laughs> you know, yeah, like, yeah. How is this table made? Any number of different things. Um, they're, they're mesmerizing. Um, people very good at their craft will show you what they do um, on YouTube channels. Um, it is amazing to watch. You'll experience all, all the time. Um, and maybe you'll pick up something you didn't know that you could do. Maybe it's woodworking. Maybe it's something that really gives you joy that you mm -hmm. can bring friends and family into. Um, yeah, I, there, what the world, what our civilizational world wants you to be is passive. It wants to feed you information all the time. Um, we have to stop sort of like just accepting that, um, be much more active in your own education and your own life and you know, what brings you joy and happiness. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Something that's been incredibly healing for me has been getting offline and, mm -hmm harvesting wild roses. I live in a abundance. There's wild roses everywhere and building bee hotels and just because I do beekeeping oh, now. Cool. And it's, so it's just these random things, but it's with my hands and it's out in nature and with the earth. And it's 
just following joy and how beautiful is that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, photography. Um, mm. I know we all have these cameras on our phones. Um, photography. F photography makes you look. It makes oh. you look. Yeah. You stop just observing in a passive way because you have mm. to take a photograph. So it makes mm. you look at things and things behind things. I do a lot of street photography in cities um, and it's intrusive, right? It, it's very uncomfortable for me to do, but it's also, it makes me look, I chase the light, I chase mm. people, I chase ideas, I chase different things, um, but it also makes me look at the world in a very different way. Um, and, you know, it, it is one of those things where it's like, you will see the awe of, you know, the railroad system, the subway system, the elevated trains, the, the brickwork uh, that surrounds you. All of those things are infinitely interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, trust me. It's a, it's a pretty interesting thing. But you, I think you, in, if you're starting out, having a tool that forces you to look uh, is actually, you know, mm. or draw. You know, yeah, like, yeah, you know, there, yeah, there's, yeah. I genuinely believe there's no, but there are, there are a few people I think who probably have like some inner working DNA, something that gives them this sort of God given gift to like carve out of marble or to draw the perfect drawing. Um, but most, most people actually just really work on it for years, you know, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And you're going to be bad for a really long time. And there's something yeah. really humbling about being bad for a really long time. <laughs> <Something>. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Always a student learning. Yeah. Totally. What, yeah. What's been your biggest lesson along the way? Um, uh, I think... Um, I was say I was trying I was trying to recall whether or not there was like an F thing for me. Um at 26, um it's sort of around 25, 26, um, your prefrontal cortex starts to be fully developed. Um that's why teenagers uh make so many mistakes. The um prefrontal cortex is going to give them some some degree of sort of rationalization of their actions. Um but by 25, 26, there's a long period of time of development for human beings to get to a place where we reach maturity. Um, at 25 and 26, I realized that I didn't have any opinions that weren't somebody else's. Um, and I think for me, that was a huge revelation because I was like, well, what do I believe? Uh, and so I had to sort of go through a process of unlearning um, that that I'll, I'll just be doing for the rest of my life. Um, you know, sometimes we, we, we call it like thinking like a Martian anthropologist. So say you were, weren't raised on this planet, you didn't absorb any culture. Like what are the things that people do and say, or what is all of that stuff? Like we, we do very, very weird things all the time. Um, and it makes you question why we're doing the things we're doing. <laughs> you know? yeah. Uh, yeah. So cultivating that is really interesting. Um, but that seminal moment for me where I was like, Am I am I just regurgitating the feed that I've been given uh, mm. since I was four years old? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a powerful one. Is there anything else that you want to add to this conversation that I haven't touched on? Ah, uh, geez, I don't know. We went through a lot. <laughs> <laughs> How can people support you? Where can they find you? 
Um, so I'm probably uh, a little bit more active on Instagram. Uh, it's Primate Kitchen, um, and so that's where I put up a lot of stuff. I'm um, I'm trying to build a worldview around all of the things, a myriad different things that are kind of like happening nowadays. Um, so it can be a little bit depressing because I'm really showing a lot uh, that's on there. Um, but I have a very active community and uh, they're really smart, really engaged, um, like just cool people from across the planet. Um, I'm probably, I'm, I am my worst self on Twitter. So you can not follow me on that if you don't want to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I would, I would really implore you to check out death in the garden. Uh, uh, Jake and Marin are doing an incredible work on writing, um, in preparation for the film, uh, and putting up stuff every once in a while. They have a sub stack called death in the garden, uh, that goes into a lot of the history that we talked about today. Um, Marin is an absolutely brilliant writer. Um, and so, uh, you can get a better sense of where we're coming from on a lot of this stuff. Cause we sort of just gave a little bit of snippets here and there. Yeah. Um, and then check it out sacredcow.info. Um, Diana has done an incredible, uh, work on sort of building a compendium of, uh, all of the things associated with meat consumption. Um, if that's something that you're passionate about, uh, but a lot of it is ecological, like for a sustainable dish, I've, I've interviewed, uh, a German veterinarian camel herder from Rajasthan, India. Uh, and she is an absolutely beautiful, wonderful person who loves camels like loves camels and pastoralists. Uh, and then I did an episode recently on phosphate mining. Um, so much more interesting than you could ever imagine. Um, I wish I was a better interviewer to like draw this stuff out of people. Um, I'm trying to get better at it. Um, but the people that I'm bringing on are really, really wonderful. Um, and so uh, it'd be interesting, to, you know, I'd love feedback. Tell me I'm full of shit. The civilization's the best <laughs> thing we ever came up with. <laughs> <laughs> you know uh yeah. that all the problems are just blips in an otherwise perfect system you know perfect whatever. System. yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think there might be more people on board with you than <laughs> yeah, <laughs> prove so. you wrong yeah yeah do you um have any thoughts on appeal that appeal the the stuff that goes on the fruit and veg this is a new thing coming oh. out isn't it Appeal. Yeah, um, I, I've listened to the guy talk. Uh, the sort of food waste uh, is a huge issue. Um, it is an absolutely massive issue. Uh, and part of the reason why is because you see the decom uh, decomposition because of ethylene gas, I think. Um, I don't know what the product is. Okay. Uh, I know. Yeah. yeah, I know what it does. I don't know what it is. Right. So. Yeah, could you keep a lot of this stuff? I'll tell you what I think from from my perspective. Uh, I eat a very nutrient dense diet, um, and because I eat a very nutrient dense diet, I don't look for a thousand different objects to fill up what I think is lacking in in the way that I eat. Right. Uh, so you can limit the amount of foods that you eat if you're eating with nutrient density in mind. Um, so that, you know, like yogurts barely spoiled and last for a really long time. Um, plain yogurts with active cultures, kefirs, stuff like that. Plain yogurts, no sugar. Um, I eat foods that I know will last for a long time so that I'm not constantly looking for, 
you know, this salad that I'm never going to eat or, you know, like it's going to yeah. be sitting in my fridge of like, ah, maybe tomorrow. And next thing you know, it's brown. I'm not chasing avocados. I'm not chasing like all of these different, like, you know, different quote unquote superfoods that have been sold to us by the Resnicks. Uh, I'm not constantly chasing all of that stuff. I'm primarily looking at foods that are, um, so I don't necessarily worry that much about spoilage, um, you know, for myself. Uh, his, his product, he was primarily, I think, working to kind of sell it more in, in Africa, uh, because there is a lot of food spoilage, uh, to market. Um, but refrigeration actually do a lot better than what this guy's product is. Yeah. Cause this is appeal is the, the film that they're putting on produce, right? So that it lasts longer. Yeah. Owned by Bill Gates. Uh, I think he was one of the investors in it. Um, yeah, but I mean, Jesus Christ, like I'm, I'm sure it's like some varied form of like fucking fossil fuel. <laughs> Sorry, I'm cursing. Probably like, gross, I'm sure, right? right. It's probably plastic. It's probably something, you know, he says it's all natural. I don't, you know, I don't know what that means. It's a marketing term. It's completely just made up. Um, but yeah, I think for, for a consumer, if you're in the West, if you're listening to this podcast, just go for nutrient density and, you know, don't constantly okay. look for all of this other foods that you think are, you know. Like, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Support your local farmers. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. Sure. <laughs> It'll be in the show notes where everybody can connect with you and watch Sacred Cow and all of the, yeah, beautiful, beautiful cool. things that we talked about. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me for an episode of the Phoenix Rising podcast. Please like, share, download, subscribe if you enjoyed this episode. And I will see you next week for another episode on the Phoenix Rising podcast. Sending so much love.